0: To so little time for the first time this year welcome if you're an old fart welcome back it is lovely to be here we sincerely hope that you've enjoyed an excellent summer break and that you're all ready to dive into some incredible english texts with us and absolutely smash vce
1: also remember to rate review and subscribe on the podcast on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts as it helps people find us
0: also, remember that we're on Instagram at so time.podcast so check us a follow for more content, handy hints and Ella's incredibly aesthetic photography skills. Before we get into the nitty-gritty though, I'd also just like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded and edited on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations uh, and acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded and this was and always will be Aboriginal land. So without further ado, let's get straight down to it. Today we're talking about revolution, religion, communism and growing up a girl. Yep, you guessed it, this episode is on Mariani Satrapi's
1: Persepolis. So just for a quick synopsis in case you have not read the book, this book is pretty different to a traditional novel, and it is really different. Majinsta Trapi takes on the graphic narrative style to tell the story of her own coming of age in the late 1970s and 1980s in Tehran. She grew up through political turmoil and the heartache of um, the Iranian Revolution and retells that story through the lens of individual personal life, that of family, education, and activism. So before we get into the nitty gritty, um, Hannah, I reckon we should talk beverages.
0: I think that's an excellent idea, Ella. Um, so in true So Little Time style, we were thinking of, you know, making our, our tea a la Iran, Iranian style, which is, according to Google, sort of black tea with cardamom and rose petals mixed in.
1: And, 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 we actually haven't been able to source this, but we have Persian neighbors who are absolutely incredible and they have like sugar on a stick. Um, And when we went over to their place for dinner um, for the first time, I was like blown away that this invention had not hit the mainstream. Like... So, yes, if we could sauce it, we would also have little sugar sticks to swirl in our
0: chai. Oh, so, you like swizzle the sugar stick and then it melts and it sweetens the tea.
1: Yes. Oh. I know, like you'd see it now in like a Fitzroy gimmick, but it's actually like, no. <laughs> you'd love Fitzroy gimmicks, not to hate on the Fitzroy people, but it's like centuries old from, yeah, Persian culture.
0: Isn't that the truth of most hipster gimmicks, though? <laughs> or yeah. From a centuries old culture it's true
1: sorry okay so because this text is so historically rich and the history is so important we thought it was only right that we watch john green's crash course
0: (laughs) in iranian history
1: yes so we're going to give you a bit of like a one minute summary of like everything that we know but if you're studying the text absolutely encourage you to just do some of your own research on Iranian history and particularly the 1979 revolution so it started with as most revolutions do economic heartache and farming difficulties and sort of natural causes of difficulty and general dissatisfaction um, in the Iranian people whilst the government at the same time was getting wealthier from oil and this resulted in sort of protests and discontent. Um, this was then capitalized on. So this discontent towards the Shah um, resulted in this sort of monarchy theo, theo, theocracy in a way. Um, being, they have protests and protests are fired on, um, which sort of start this whole thing off. Um, then capitalized on by fundamentalist government, Khomeini, who comes to power um, and has a really fundamentalist view on Islamic religion, specifically um, from the Shiite part. Um, and we sort of see Sharia law coming through in Iran, um, and it's he's given the power to, to literally do anything in the country. Um, in the so, name of Islam, that is. Yes, in the name of Islam. So life under Khomeini remains really repressive um, but it's not merely a dictatorship that we can overlook in history books, it's the lives of individual people that are sort of caught up in this history and that's the message Majim Satrapi wants us to hear, that it's real people that are caught in this, in this mess of fundamentalism um, and heartache that ultimately um, has really devastating effects for the country. So yes, that's my one minute summary of what John Green taught us.
0: Thank <laughs> much for that brilliant breakdown right there. Amazing. Thank Ella Turnerman is the new John Green, let's face it. Right.
1: Well, I don't think I could fill those shoes, but <laughs> I try <tried> my best. <laughs> He's a man with big shoes. He's also his brother's on TikTok. Really? Yes. Wow. You have to get onto it, Hannah.
0: <laughs> I wish I was on TikTok.
1: <laughs> I wish
0: Hank was kind of the hipper one of the two
1: is the Fitzroy version.
0: Mm, yes, Hank is the Fitzroy version. John is like, I don't know. Bullying.
1: Bulleen? Yeah, I was gonna say Doncaster. <laughs> yeah, dependable, always <laughs> there for you. Um, you know, solid information. you just state your listeners, they'll be like, what are they talking about? <laughs> anyway, moral of the story is Google it and do your research. So we are joined today by the lovely Yanni, who graduated in 2019 with a 49 in English, which is pretty crazy, um, from Halebri, And she's the expert on all things Persepolis and has been tutoring all year. So welcome Yanni, thanks for chatting with us.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's so nice to be here. I'm a fan of the
1: podcast as well. Oh, you're too cool. <laughs> um, so should we just jump right into it, Hannah?
0: Yeah, I reckon. Um, we're doing things a little bit differently with this episode rather than asking a couple of specific questions to our special guest, because Yani knows absolutely everything about this text. We're just going to have her along for the ride for the entire episode. So, Yanni, be prepared to be interrogated on every single theme. Love
2: right. it. I'm buckling up for this ride. Let's go. I was
1: about to say buckle up. Great minds. Great. <laughs> <laughs> oh. so. I want to ask because I think it's quite an interesting aspect of the text this sort of like growing up a bit of a buildings roman if we're going to get literature and that sort of idea of it being a story of a childhood so Yanni how do you think that kind of affects how the story is to- being told it being from a child's perspective mm.
2: I think it really stays true to this the narrative that Marjane Satrapi narrates overall. Like you said, it's a Bildungsroman, it's an exploration, it's a coming of age story of an individual who's living during a time of the Iranian um, Revolution as well, during this time of instability, the repressive regime under Hermione's rule. So I think what it offers is this childlike lens, but at the same time, it offers this fundamentality that we are all human at the end of the day, it reveals the universality of humanity that is so central to the theme of this book overall, Um, looking at identity of not just Margie's childhood, but also the collective identity of of the Iranians living during these oppressive um, regime. And also ultimately to challenge the West's perceptions of what they have of the East, of what they have of the other, and I put that in quotation marks because I think political rhetoric and media from the West often demonises the other and segregates between the West and the East, creating this dichotomy that's actually false. So I think that's what Margie does so well through the childlike lens, um, establishing this universality.
0: Yeah, I guess it's really easy to, you know, write off a whole population or an entire culture as other, as you said, when you're thinking about adults. But yeah, Mm -hmm. as you said, like childhood is universal and every child, no matter where they are in the world, is going to have dreams and innocence and love for those around them and love for their parents. And, you know, that sort of fantastic, um, I don't know, fascination with everything that when you can see that alien environment through that sort of lens, you're right, it really makes it so much easier to understand and so much more approachable. Yeah, It yeah, almost
1: that's... makes trauma worse because you see these children that are living through war. And it, were you about to talk about the panel where they were playing war really early on?
2: Mimicry. Of,
1: yeah, did you talk um, about
2: it? of essentially Margie and her friends at school play with the veils. They're riding on te- each other like horses. They're talking about the war. But it's all like dark humor through the lens of that child again. Um, and like... Ella saying, it almost makes that trauma so much more real as well.
1: Exactly, and I think another interesting point to do with almost her growing up, her coming of age, um, is that the story gets um, more, like visually it becomes more complex, that you sort of have early on this like black and white, quite a simple picture, that through that graphic novel format becomes like there are more patterns and you sort of see that things have more of a grey area, I'd say, adds to it quite a bit. Yeah, definitely. And talking about the artworks, I
2: think Satrapi also utilises a lot of the traditional Persian artworks and styles as well. Um, not in this copy of my book, but there's a copy of where the front cover is embellished in all red, and there's tulips um, on the front cover as well. And the tulips actually signify, um, you know, it's the the signal of the martyrdom that came out of Hermione's rule. Um, I think, yeah, so they, like, red flowers growing from the blood of the martyrs. Um, so it's a direct destabilisation of the truth straight away in the front cover of one of the books as well. Yeah, So a lot of the traditional artworks are used there and has a
1: lot of meaning behind it lot of symbolism Mm -hmm. that's like you have cracked the code there like
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think it's also really interesting um sort of on that theme of growing up and personal growth that um sort of growing up for marjane is intertwined with her political awakening so as she becomes older she becomes more outspoken she like learns to speak for herself and think for herself um and really discovers what her own values are in this time of immense social and political upheaval. Um, Yeah, so I guess, yeah, growing up as well as being more aware of what's going on in the world is also learning to affirm your values and learning to affirm what you believe in.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think Margie's family plays such a huge role in her, like you said, finding her own voice, her political awakening as well. Like in the in the novel in the graphic novel, it's she mentions her family as quite avant-garde. Her her family is quite um, liberal in their values as well, and they encourage her to listen to music, pop music artists, and things like that. Her dad even brings back a poster, and I think that reaffirms her purpose, um, belonging to that diaspora, to really voice the truth of what happened during the nineteen seventy nine um, revolution and to provide um, the social narrative as much as possible, yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think that perfectly brings us to our next kind of theme, being the personal and the political, or kind of putting them, it in a way reframes the history of the Iranian revolution, um, because you're seeing it not only through the lens of a child but through the lens of an individual and through a family so it's almost like these personal lives and the everyday lives of individuals very much are caught up in something that we may only hear about through statistics or through the plot of major events rather than just what happened every day for people Um, so how do you think that has affected how we view history I think how it's affected history, it's, it's become a
2: very one-dimensional view of history. And we've only really known it since um, the Western take on it. So, um, Persepolis, the reason that that marjane really wanted to voice this narrative was after the 9-11 bombings, um, President George W. Bush did the, made a speech and he referred to Iran, Iraq, North Korea as part of the axis of evil. Um, so what Margie really wanted to do was to first dispel this one-dimensional view, this dichotomy that was created from this speech, um, and also to to let the world know that um, there was a lot of people who sacrificed for freedom during that time as well. Like in the novel, um, Margie's beloved uncle Anush, who was executed as a Russian spy, I'm using inverted commas there, um, Uncle Anoush is a symbol of freedom in Margie's eyes and an idol that she looks up to, a role model. And um, there's this panel where there's a splash page of Uncle Nosh in the um, newspaper and it says, Russian spy executed. And there's two little bread swans next to the newspaper. Even though the bread swans aren't any form of high art, it's this childlike lens coming through again And those bread swans really symbolise that freedom, that innocence that has been lost from this revolution. Um, So Marjain really wishes to um, dispel that notion um, and to make sure that those who gave their lives up during the Islamic revolution will not be um, forgot. They can be forgiven, but they cannot be forgotten. So this idea of memory passing on the truth through generations, yeah.
0: And I think I love that particular panel with the the newspaper headlines and the breadstrumbs because it really shows that whole personal political um, reframing that we were talking about in that you literally have, you know, the big political headline, the, Mm -hmm. you know, movement, the words Russian, communist, all of those big ideas. And then next to it you have the bread swan, which is such a tiny individual symbol of who Uncle Anush was and what he meant to his family. Um literally you know
1: contrasted right there so i think that's a great example to use and i love as well what we we're talking about the small acts of defiance oh page 70 was where, was where what we we're talking about um i love the small acts of defiance that like um she wears margie wears like um clothes from the west or something and nike sneakers something like that and i love that i'm like what And it makes me think, what would my small act of defiance be? Like, (laughs) what would I still do if I was told I couldn't?
0: Yeah, I guess it's it would depend what wasn't allowed in the first place. Mm That's
1: true. I think it would be something to do with like earrings. Statement earrings. That would be my my small act of defiance. (laughs) I love this point that you raised, Ella, how
2: reading this graphic novel gets you to reflect back on your own values as well. What would I do in that position? And that's exactly what Marjane wishes us to to do, I feel, um, is to reminisce and look within, to practice catharsis. You know, she uses a lot of panels where there's mirrors straight away. So, you know, through that motif of the mirror, we practice self-reflection in that way as well.
1: Oh, my gosh, that's too clever. (laughs) Yeah. Oh,
0: absolutely brilliant.
1: Genius stuff from Yanni. (laughs) So, the absolute, like, favourite thing to talk about on this podcast is feminism. Mm. So, it brings us nicely to women's roles and what kind of happens when there's sort of broader oppression on everyone what happens with like these liberated and outspoken women and how do you think the novel kind of portrays yeah gender
2: mm. um i don't think i looked too much into gender per se when i was looking at this novel but i can say like going back to the family and the trauma over generations i think there's this sense of post-generational trauma that's throughout from margie's grandmother who shares such a tight relationship with and her mother as well um and yeah it's really about struggling to find your own identity and um yeah what do you what do you think about gender roles in Persephone
0: mm-hmm. good question i i love what they've done here in sort of Really highlighting the three generations of women, um, and all three of them have such a profound impact on each other's lives. But um, I also love that it was sort of Mariani's mother that encouraged her activism and wanted to raise her to be this liberated young woman. You know, she literally takes her to protests when she's a little kid, and she'll put her in danger so long as she knows, you know, what her values are and knows to think for herself and knows to be outspoken. So I think that sort of women empowering women as a really significant theme um, is something that's quite quite interesting here.
1: I think it's so interesting and I think as well that the idea of like the guards of the revolution, I think it's page 132, um, are also women who are very that sort of conservative um, Um, yeah, just wanting everyone to wear the veil and they're the ones who pick up on Margie not behaving in the way she should. She's wearing her cool shoes again. So I think it's interesting as well, the role of women in imposing um, the rules of society, that a lot of the time there's a lack of sisterhood in the face of a larger control or a larger system, um, which is something we see across the board, not only in literature, but just in society, that sometimes it's women against women that can be a really powerful form of control
2: yeah definitely i agree with both hannah and what ella's saying especially the idea of um women contributing to this oppression of women and the cyclical nature i think um in persepolis the collective iranian identity sort of suffer from this social amnesia of forgetting who they are and not being true to themselves you know iran has such a rich history it wasn't just born in 1979 it was there thousands of years before um, as part of the Persian Empire so yeah definitely I think you see both sides of humanity the multiple facets you know the empowering side um, with Margie's family but also the side that contributes to this repressive regime and system against women.
1: True and Hannah just another question as well I'm not sure if I like still I know I've spoken about it before. I don't know if I understand it. So, like, what do you think of this sort of, like, motherhood and the ideal motherhood? Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting that Satrapi
0: pays such attention to that because I think motherhood is a really big theme here in um, Persepolis. I think, I guess what she's saying is that, like, motherhood isn't necessarily something to be idealised and not everyone has those great big maternal instincts that you know stop them from doing anything to harm their child or you know give them superhuman feelings of strength like you hear all those stories about mothers lifting cars to save their babies and I think Satrapi is basically saying that's not really always how it goes and like mothers can have their own independent identities um, apart from how they relate to their children um, which I think is really interesting, especially with like in relation to um, my Jane's mother as well, because she had such a, a
1: independent life as well. Totally. I think you're right that you know it's it sometimes isn't this, you know in trauma, there's often this sort of seeking for a happy story, like a story of human connection, and sometimes it's not that. Sometimes the reality of what occurs is that people prioritize survival. And there's no kind of like silver lining to the story. Um, There's actually a lot of devastation instead, Um, which, yeah, I think again, A reframes the narrative and also makes it all the more tragic um, for the people that genuinely and really did live through this revolution.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: On that mellow note. Talk about religion just to you know diffuse things. <laughs> so talking about religion, all yeah,
0: so much more uplifting,
1: isn't it? Isn't it? Um, Text. I know. I love the part where Margie's like sees God, and Marx is so ridiculously similar.
2: Yes. <laughs> like Childhood, childlike lenses coming through again.
1: I know, I know. So, does that mean that she's kind of seeing her identity in both? Or, yeah, what do we make of that?
0: I just have to say so, Ella, you might remember this from our school. There was this poster in the classroom where they taught history revolutions, and it was like an old Chinese communist poster that had like the evolution from like Marx through to um, Lenin through to Stalin through to like Chairman Mao or something. And I remember always looking at that in like year seven and eight and being like, is that God at the end there? Or like. <laughs> <laughs> I can see it.
1: Yeah. He
0: totally looks the same.
1: He totally looks the same.
0: Maybe that was his plan all along.
1: Phenomenal. That's probably why he never cut his hair, Max. Mm. It's like, got to go for this like God look. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think that's also something to ponder for, for haircuts. <laughs>
0: yeah when you you know let your hair grow out during quarantine it's not because you're lazy it's just it's more, more godlike
1: I can't <laughs> quarantine hair that's really what we're trying to say
2: that's the theme that's the overall message of this podcast if you take away one thing so.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly um marks and his hair so um yeah i think it is an interesting kind of point though that there's sometimes it's like childlike, you know, childlike lens um, moments that actually show us a lot about society in a way. I think I might also talk about
2: another um, scene from that episode, from the bicycle. So just a page after um, the comparison between God and Mark. So we see the burning of Rex cinema. I think that's a really good example as well as Black uh, Black Friday of um, the collective Iranian identity and the trauma overall. So in that panel, uh, page 15, you can see the ghosts almost flame-like trying to escape from the cinema and uh, it's almost reminiscent of the expressionist style of, you know, Edvard Munch's The Scream, Mm. reminiscent of that. Yeah, so there's a lot of, you know, references to Western art forms as well through Satrapi's artworks. Um, What's really interesting is that I did some research and the movie that they were showing that night at Rex Cinema was called The Deer and it's quite an avant-garde liberal movie where the plot of it is there's um, this upheaval against the Shah. Um, so there's people going against the Shah and that was the, the movie that was the place that they decided to burn down and essentially the police um, didn't let anyone go inside and rescue those people that were just essentially burned to death. Um, I think that's another example of the collective trauma of these um, Iranian people. yeah.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's shown again that they all look really similar. Like yes,, because yeah. the screen, that image, if you like if our listeners want to Google, there's just the one character in that in that picture. But when you put all of these these individuals together and have them look similar, it is showing that collective, desperation to head towards the exit and the collective um pain and horror i suppose of having similar characters all with that that sort of awful expression
0: um yeah i don't know why like this might be completely unrelated but it also kind of reminds me of like in paintings of like the ultimate judgment day when all the souls like in the bible are supposed to have you know arisen from dead and like face judgment once again from god like i don't know if we're we're talking on the theme of religion here like does it kind of remind you of that as well
1: there's some god. sort of mm-hmm. yes yeah yeah it is very much like that That sort of like again emphasizing the collective but also that kind of like souls leaving their bodies kind of you
0: know. yeah Maybe especially I'm into a bit of john dunn here but <laughs>
1: yeah yeah we, we did john dunn in yeah. um in year 12 who's very much like just wanted to talk about religion so if we can read into it we will
2: <laughs> go for it do it this is your time now to shine <laughs> take the stage
1: Dunn's yeah. personal ambassadors we like to call them. <laughs> yeah um
0: yeah i think it's also really interesting how um of in the beginning of the graphic novel in Mariani's very early childhood, she really emphasises how devoutly religious she was and she was like, I'm going to be a prophet when I grow up. Mm -hmm. She has these deep conversations with God and then it's only once she undergoes a sort of political awakening that she renounces religion. So it's sort of like once religion became weaponized um, in her culture, uh, that is when it Uh, no longer means as much as it did previously to her
1: personally. So
0: I think that's a really interesting... Yeah,
1: I think, and I think that um, is often something that people can relate to across the board, that when you're younger, religion's quite easy, that, you know, um, you can sort of have blind faith a lot easier as a child than when you grow up and it's used in different ways and you have to question it and you have to kind of go through this process i think that's something that again is universal and that's quite quite lovely that you know with again seeing through her coming of age something that a lot of us and a lot of her readers could relate to um
2: yeah and throughout the the story as well there's also the martyrs like the young boys who are recruited and essentially um there's like the golden keys that they're given to heaven where there's Food, unlimited food, um, women, and things like that. That's what the regime say to them. Essentially, brainwashing, um, creating this cult of martyrdom. So I think for so, uh, for Margie as well, it's her coming of age, the Bildungsroman, but um, also questioning the truth. So understanding, but also questioning and challenging, um, destabilizing the truths that she was grown up to. Um, be taught and um, live by yeah yeah very true
1: and I think that comes quite nicely to education as another theme Um, including like the state's role and that sort of the veil bring being brought into schools and um, yeah I think children and ideology is a really interesting point as well
0: yeah like we definitely learn quite early on that children are ideologically malleable to use the the quote, I think, Um, I'm not sure where from in the book, but, you know, there's this idea that including political ideology in the early education of children is incredibly powerful and incredibly dangerous because, you know, children are so accepting of everything. They, you know, they're like sponges, they soak up whatever they're told. Um, And, you know, you just think how devout Margie was at the beginning of the book, if she'd been told when she was in those formative years that, you know, Here's a golden key to heaven, and if you go and sacrifice yourself, you know, and die in battle, you'll be a martyr. She probably would have been okay with it. And it's only because of her incredibly avant-garde progressive parents that she managed to escape that. So,
1: yeah, And there's this quote. So, as she's leaving for Vienna, um, so I'm so keen to hear what you both think of this. Um, It's, considering the person that you are and the education you've received, we thought it would be better if you left Iran. So, what do you think that kind of means? Why is her identity like, is it, yeah, the person that she is and her education are sort of framed within the same sentence that they're both the reason that she's leaving?
2: I think that that just shows to her um, how important her family is. I think her family represents those avant garde values and has given Margie a lot of space to develop into her own self as well. She has that close relationship with her grandma who says, um, stay true to yourself, um, always keep your dignity as she's about to leave for, to the airport as well. Um, and then again, we see the mirror as she's leaving, um, looking within, self-reflection. So yeah, I think definitely education is a huge part of her identity Um, And it goes to show that in times of war, a lot of those who are um, illiterate or not well-educated are always manipulated by by the repressive regimes, Um, so it's it's a caution for us to be more aware, to not practice in this social amnesia Mm. either, and to um, really look within, challenge what those in power say is true, yeah.
0: I think it's also like suggestive that, you know, education isn't just in the book sense, in the academic sense. Oh. Like Mariani's education didn't just come from, you know, her days at school where she was low-key being indoctrinated half the time. It was also as a result of her parents and the political education that they gave her, the political awareness that they imparted onto her, you know, sort of the street smarts that she learnt growing up so I think it's it's just a really interesting take that education is a very multifaceted um, idea
1: absolutely and there's another quote I learned that you should always shout louder than your aggressor which I believe is sort of in that classroom sense um, Mm -hmm. as she's sort of being political in class and I find it so interesting that she takes the language of education and learning and puts it in her political education like it's not just the classroom knowledge that she grew up learning like you know we did like we didn't need to have a political education in the same sense that she did um and yeah that language of kind of um, cl- the classroom language is sort of used for political things as well
0: Ah, oh, well on that note of politics uh why don't we move on to sort of the connection to a country connection to place um as a theme in this book what do we sort of think um because clearly it's a it's a massive theme like the title of the book is persepolis which is sort of that uh integration of like persia and metropolis so i think yeah it it really is about connection to a place and connection to country what do you think about that yanni
2: yeah um so just like looking at the context a bit more at the name of the book persepolis um it's already quite um different it challenges your view we don't hear the word persepolis uh, even though the the word for it in the persian language is iran which we know of as a country is called iran so already already then it's a direct address it destabilizes your truth Um, i think in one of the interviews um that sopachabi had she was asked why did you decide to call it um persepolis And she says she just really wanted to emphasise this historical image of Iran as something that the culture is so rich and flourishing. And in the introduction of Persepolis, she says um, she doesn't want just Iran, when we hear the name Iran, to be associated with fundamentalism, fanaticism and terrorism, which is what a lot of people in the West did think of and associated Iran with. She was saying, you know, it's an old and great and it's so rich um, in its history and culture, and to really expose that freedom throughout as well from the Islamic revolution.
1: Yeah, I think that's the perfect way to answer, answer Hannah's question, that um, also, so historically, we did, so we did, I did this subject at uni, which is about literature and place and how like cities work in literature. And my key one takeaway from the semester was (laughs) that um, so this text was Persepolis is that's also the name of the capital of I think it's the Achaemenid Empire in 500 BC. So it's not it's sort of evoking again this historical city that was like a jewel um, of this sort of thriving economically strong empire that lasted for centuries and centuries. So it is evoking this history of a place that is now um something that's associated with you know fundamentalism as you're saying but it used to be Mm -hmm. so incredible and that's why it's not titled tehran which would be the capital of today's iran but she uses sort of old language and my other little research was that Iran was named Iran by the Shah in the 1930s. So when people use the name Persia or refer to themselves as Persia, it's one of those small acts of defiance, of culturally associating yourself with the old Iran or the old Persia, um, rather than the modern day um, sort of uh, yeah modern day political Iran and the modern day. Um, Sort of what's become of the country, they sort of reach back into history and use old language because that's culturally where they most associate, which I think is lovely. And yeah. like, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah.
2: that's so nice to hear, Ella, as well. That sounds like a really amazing course that you took.
1: And if that was your one takeaway, I think that's amazing. <laughs> I think it was a good takeaway, like for my one. Really good. <laughs> <laughs> I was a bit like. I was a bit disappointed we didn't do more texts on the VC, like that doubled up with the VC study guide. So I couldn't like grab more things for you guys. <laughs> but That's all we need. That's amazing. I thought so. I thought that was the important part too. So <laughs> wins all around.
0: Yeah. I think like what you're saying there, Ella, about sort of that love and that defiance um, and insistence on naming something by its historic name really goes to show that You know you can love a country even after it's sort of rejected you in a way like you know marjan eventually has to flee iran because it's not safe for her there anymore and but you know in spite of that she still romanticizes her home she hopes to return you know she wonders if the moon shines as brightly in vienna as it does in iran she takes a jar of soil with her like that's just so beautiful you know you know she has this deep connection to her country even if what's going on in it superficially in terms of its political context is a little bit messed up for the time being and, and I, I think it's a really hopeful beautiful message that she takes there
1: yeah and i think we should just cue don't cry for me argentina like <gasps> isn't that the vibe
0: I, don't cry for me argentina
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh maybe the glee version in the
0: past Yes, oh. We're true We're, the curtsings But
1: Kurt sings. That's what we need for right now.
0: Live or something.
1: (laughs) I think we we should try and get him to do it live.
0: I'll see if I can edit it in.
1: (laughs) Speaking of heroes, um, because, you know, we're speaking about Kurt. See (laughs) the segue? We have talked about this quite a bit already, but is there anything more we want to talk about with kind of heroism, martyrdom, um, and, yeah, how, both how... Margie as a child sees heroes and then, yeah, who's the hero is my question. I think
2: Margie's hero can be like her family, especially her grandmother, and also Uncle Anosh, definitely as well, that we touched on before.
1: Yeah, very much so.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting because it's almost like there are two different types of martyr in the novel. Like there's the martyrs that, you know, are made out politically. Um, You know, as we were talking about before, the whole thing with dying a martyr and getting a golden key to heaven in exchange and sort of that really fundamentalist, quite scary um, weaponization of the word. But then at the same time, you also have martyrs that are unthanked and, you know, die without really being acknowledged and possibly die without even contributing to their cause. People like Uncle Anoush. Um, I think there's a quote, to die a martyr is to inject blood into the veins of society, but there are plenty of martyrs that, you know, that doesn't
1: really happen for and they never really get acknowledged. Mm. And, like, there, it just meant that there was sort of this tragedy of people losing their lives, but it being almost meaningless um, in the scheme of the, the, not the plot, but in the scheme of what historically happened. Um, Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think it also relates to that idea of like childhood innocence, that when children are very young, they see martyrdom or heroism as something to be really proud of and something that's really exciting. Like initially, um, when you don't really understand that war is awful and dying is not fun, that you know, the fact that Murray's mother, her father, sorry, wasn't a war hero or hadn't been in prison like her friend Lali's father, she's really disappointed in that. She's like, oh, like, I, I don't have that little star badge to put on my sash, like, what am I supposed to do about it? And then eventually she becomes quite disenchanted with that political uh, idea of martyrdom. Um, and she sees that it's really just, just as we were,
1: we were discussing before, but yeah, exactly. Very true and justice is another interesting theme that sort of i always find it interesting when you finish a text like sort of you look at where the characters end and you're sort of like which where was justice was there not justice um yeah
0: yeah i guess the the question here is like when is it right to forgive people when they've wronged you and when is it right to fight back sort of always that constant active balancing like deciding what is worth fighting for and what is important to you what are your values Um, sometimes you know her Marianne's parents say well you know why did you chase that problem you should have just let it go straight over your head let it pass it's not worth fighting for but then at the same time they are both massively politically active and when there have been acts of injustice against them or against the people that they care about they are willing to fight for it so Absolutely. Yeah. It's a really important moral question that Satrapi asking there.
1: Because there is a contrast between sometimes it's the solution is let's go protest. Let's take to the streets. And then, sorry, that sounded very bogan, but like genuinely, <laughs> <laughs> let's take to the streets. And then other times the solution is you should pursue going to another country and fleeing. So when it, that's sort of an interesting contrast, when is it fight? When is it flight? Um, and I think, in a way we can idealize protesting all we want but at the same time sometimes all that can be done is people leave um, which should give us more empathy towards what's happening currently in the world the you know we're in the middle of a refugee crisis still Mm -hmm. and you know so much hurt in the world and surely this being a universal story we should all recognize that um sometimes people just have to run away and yeah, it should give us more empathy, I think, um, which would be a lovely way for um, the story to end, in a way. Empathy and understanding
2: and always questioning what is told to us from those in power.
1: Exactly. Amen. Th- that's amen, sister. Amen, sister. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's... I basic- love it.
0: Am I part of the sister club?
1: <laughs> the, sister, the sisterhood now, the sisterhood of so little time. Yeah. <laughs> love it. Um, so, Yanni, a fi- another question, a final question. What kind of advice would you give to someone studying Persepolis? What's your like, mm. don't, your like number one hack to VCE? I think, oh, there's a couple of questions in that actually.
2: <laughs> advice <laughs> Persepolis and hack for VCE. I think I'll, I'll talk about the first one first and then talk about hack VCE. I think read Persepolis with an open mind. I think going in with a blank slate and not being crowded with all the political rhetoric out there um, and rereading it each time you pick up so many little clues and hints. I think the power of a graphic novel memoir is that not only can you analyse the written, but also the pictures, the spaces between panels. Some panels don't even have borders. Analyse that. Analyse how there's the big splash pages, the heavy graphic weight. Um, and there's so many you know historical context and so much rich history as well Um, I think get really excited about Persepolis it's going to change like your understanding of English but also the world as well which I think is what happens when you read a great book Um, a hack for uh, VC in general is I think forming really good relationships with your teachers um, help a lot because looking back at it now the subjects I didn't well in is i i enjoyed it but also i had the best relationships with my teachers i could approach them ask some questions for example my english teacher we'd meet at lunch times and just talk about the book talk about a panel that we really liked in depth we meet after school before school so i think really putting yourself out there and enjoying the subject is will be reflective in the school in the end yeah
1: Amazing advice. Yanni Lou right there. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Hannah. (laughs) Well, thank you so much again, Yanni. It has been incredible to have you along for the ride.
2: (laughs) Thank you. I love this conversation so much. It's um, brought back so many memories, so many fond memories I've had in year 12.
0: Well, (laughs) um, we are always happy to inspire some reminiscing because um, we do a lot of it here on this podcast as you probably know um, but until next time yanni thank you so much and yeah all the best yeah and to everyone else happy reading